Hello. Today we return to those forests of medieval England, which seem to serve as a kind of frontier between fairy and the mortal realms. We left Lownfall covered in mud, poor and ridiculed, sitting under a tree in a very understandably bad mood. All right. Okay, so we ended class last time before we really got in, or at least before I permitted us really to get into Lonval's encounter with the fairies themselves. We were talking near the end of last time about the significance of the woods and him being out in the forest, as we've seen that being the most popular place for the encounters with, with fairies so far. What do we notice about his actual encounter with the fairy women? We talked about his reaction to their beauty, and we talked about the richness of their dress, certainly correlating with the spectacular richness of her tent uh, when he finally gets to, to, to Triamor's right? And, of course, this being the kind of vis- visual splendor that we've come to expect after our encounters with fairy last time, too. Um, but what else do you notice? One thing that we didn't talk about is the two maidens that he meets. What are they doing? What's his first encounter with, when, when he first encounters fairies, what actually occurs? What actions are being performed? Emily? He's sitting alone in the woods being sad. And he sees some rescue clips and he goes, oh, hi, ladies. And he's like, oh, we've been looking for you. Our lady clips speak with you. Yeah, yeah. They invite him in, right? So this, of course, makes it, the situation very different from Orpheo's encounter or his experience in fairy, right? Rather than, you know, he goes in, you know, uh, you know, teed what may be teed, right? You know, happen whatever's going to happen, I'm going to go. He willingly transgresses the boundary. Lanfal is invited in. He's approached and invited in. Um, and it's not just like, you know, hey, stranger, why don't you come in? They're seeking him out. And when he gets to Triamor, she says, look, you know, I've been watching you. I-, I love you more than anybody else in Christendom, right? So this is clearly a personal invitation. What are they carrying? The maidens. Towels and basins to wash them. Yeah, he's got a gold. One has a gold basin full of water, and the other one has a towel. Again, we get the emphasis on how swank they are, right? A beautiful gold basin and an awesome silken towel. But it's still a basin and a towel, what do we make of that? Why does why does why are we bringing him a basin and a towel? Well, he fell in the mud. So he, he, he did. Dirty. He's very dirty. Yeah, yeah. He's turned, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And that was, of course, you know, that moment seems to work really emblematically. This is like the the final straw. Right, sort of the final outward manifestation of his rejection by society. This is the day, remember, when he wanted to go to church for, for Trinity Sunday, but he couldn't because he didn't have shoes and, and hose and clean pants, right? And then, to top things off, his horse slips and he falls into the fen and he's covered in mud and people are laughing at him, right? So we see him being completely outcast, him being... Uh, 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 recall the comment that the boy makes when the fairies come searching for him to, to start giving him his loot, right, when he comes back to town. And they're like, you're looking for Lanfall? He needs but a wretch, right? He's just a wretch. That, that guy, he's like a beggar, Lanfall is. Why are you looking for him? All right, so we can see that moment as, you know, as I said, really kind of like an emblem of his being outcast, but also, literally, he's dirty. He's covered in mud and grime sitting there under his tree. Um, so he, they, the first thing they do is 
offer to clean him up. And I think that we can see this in a couple different ways. On the one hand, remember... Well, on the one hand, it seems to reverse simply like the interpersonal dynamics, right? They're doing the opposite of pointing and laughing at him for having fallen in the mud, um, whereas the people just mock him and sort of cast him out and he runs away. The fairies, their approach is, uh, you seem to uh, have fallen in the mud. Let's clean you with golden basins and silken towels, right? So on the one hand, this is certainly just generosity, we remember how generosity has been a theme. This is a kind of a personal generosity that they're showing him. But I think there's more to it here. Remember the, the king of fairies in Orfeo talking about what a sorry couple Orfeo and Herodotus made? Right? And the problem was not one of social stature, but just of aesthetics. Like this nasty, gnarled, hairy, dirty old guy uh, with beautiful Queen Herodotus. Well, here's even more beautiful, even more sublime, Lady Triamore in her amazing tent and her striking lack of many clothes. Uh, and he's going to be invited in and, you know, like, have a nice lunch and go to bed. What, 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 while caked in mud? I mean, they would look a pretty sorry couple too. Um, so there is a sense in which it seems to be part of being invited in or almost like a a sort of a, a sensible kind of precursor to the invitation, right? Uh, we've been looking for you. We don't mind that you are poor and nasty looking, but we're going to clean you up before we bring you in, right? Um, that seems fit. Jordan, go ahead. Um, I was thinking about that relation to something we discussed last time, which is with the scorn of Queen Guinevere, who has not so seems to symbolically reverse his fortunes from good to bad. In this, their willingness to clean him up, so to speak, cleans up his fortunes. But there's a much more literal connection between his you know, good fortune and his encounter with Triamor. But I think there's also a symbolic connection that he, he's, he's, he used to be rich, then he got scorned, and now everyone scorns him. Now he gets cleaned up by someone, and now everyone you know, views him as awesome at the end of this reading, most people at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His, uh, true, true. No, and I agree. I mean, I think we can see this connection between appearances and what lie beneath the appearances is clearly something that matters in this poem and clearly has some kind of, It doesn't mean that somebody who looks bad on the outside must be bad on the inside, of course, as we've seen, but the way in which his external fortunes seem to match the difficulties that he's going through, that seems to be pretty close in this poem. So I agree. It's, you know, sometimes, sometimes I am myself resistant to reading works of literature in general and often medieval literature in particular in too overtly, I don't know, how shall I say, English majory away. Like it's kind of tempting sometimes to go all, you know, AP English class on books like this and be like, well, his outward dirtiness symbolizes the <laughs> poverty of his soul. And, you know, you end up talking like, you know, like... I don't want to, I mean, like, I'm not going to say bad things about AP English teachers and stuff, but I mean, I know I had a lot of English classes like that in high school, and in fact, it was exactly classes like that in high school, which initially, I didn't like English, I liked books, but I didn't like English classes at all until, like, my junior year of high school, because I kind of was under the impression, I think defensibly, that it was all a big load of BS, that it was just this kind of 
gymnastics that you do in class discussions, like, ah, behold the symbolism. Um, And I didn't find that a very interesting or rewarding kind of exercise. Um, And when I came to see that really it's just about reading books, like carefully and thinking about what they say, that, that, that is sort of when the appeal kind of started to grow on me personally. And so sometimes I think in talking about, especially a poem like this, we can sort of start to sound that way. But I actually think it's warranted here. I think that we can see this seems to be one of the ways in which this poem thinks. It doesn't seem to be really apologetic about that, that we have these invisible things that are being pointed to in visible ways. Medieval literature works like that a lot, actually, because it was one of the ways that medieval writers and readers tended to think a lot. They thought allegory was a very natural thing to them. They liked allegory as a way of representing visibly invisible things, right? Um, that's, that's what you get, and it's not as it is often sort of misunderstood, I think, sometimes by modern people, just a kind of oversimplification. Um, in fact, when you take a complicated invisible state and you render it in visible terms, you can actually do some really interested and complicated things with it and really examine it in ways that you can't do otherwise, I think, unless you're doing um, you know, some pretty high-level philosophizing about it. Um, so I think the allegorical mode works really well, and I'm not saying that this is just an allegory and that we should check out the story, but I think that we can see this story working in some of those ways, that we can see these moments where things that are going on, either like moral questions or sort of emotional things or whatever that are going on under the surface are being rendered visible and describable in these material ways. And I think that we're... My own reading of the text is that we're sort of justified in talking about it in those terms. There's a long, perhaps unnecessary apologia, but I do feel kind of guilty sometimes. I don't want to just just, uh, go back to the old, at least old for me, um, BS English class approach. Um, Let's talk about his relationship with Triamor, his lady, who is unnamed in all of the other versions. Uh, this, is a, this name is new to her and kind of perplexing. Um, if you want to have a lot of speculative fun, uh, why not throw your hat into the what might Triamor's name mean ring? Um, that's a fun game to play, uh, not one that I want to spend a lot of time playing in class. Uh, but, like, knock yourself out. It's cool. Um, uh, anyhow, um, obviously her name has the word love in it. That's pretty simple it seems. Uh, it's the tree thing that's so, that's, so, that's so tantalizing. Let's look closely. What does she say? What do we see in her declarations? There are a bunch of things from her initial response to him to their sort of the establishment of their relationship all the way then down to the prohibition that she makes. And I think that all of them are, it's, it's easy for us to misconstrue any or all of those things, and I want to be careful looking at it. What does she say? What does she say to him? Tell me, and you don't have to do it in order. Tell me anything that you think was important, significant, that you, that you really wanted to emphasize. Yeah, Kat? Uh, she says that you need to renounce all other women. Good. Yes, there is... She explicitly uses... overtly marital language, right? This is not some wild, 
affair with a fairy in the woods. She talks about it in terms of faithfulness like unto marriage and not just like unto. As your footnotes point out, she actually uses verbal formulae from betrothal agreements. Um, so they make, they, they exchange vows, actual vows that would have been used in weddings. Um, so there is something almost, not quite formal, but almost formal about that exchange. What she is asking, she is not just saying, hey, you know, I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be your girlfriend and, you know, we can have nights of wild romance whenever you want. But we are going to establish a relationship. And we see him thinking in this way too, right from the beginning. I mean, look at his, the first thing he says to her. She has her first approach there on line 301. Launfal me lemon sweater, right? She starts off. But how she singled him out and she loves him. There's no man in Christente that he loves so much as they. She esteems him and loves him better than, than, than the kings and emperors, right? We see I, you may be splattered with mud, you may be poor and living in a, in a shed on the edge of an orchard, but you, I have chosen and I love better than any king or emperor. I can see your true value and I, I respect you. His response. Sweating, what's so Before she even proposes it, before she even is talking in vow exchanging terms, he's already making vows, right? Whatever happens, I am dedicated to you. So he agrees very readily when she says, abandon all other women, and he's like, um, okay, wait, let me think. Yeah, that's a no brainer. Sure, I'll do that, right? So I think that that's a really important thing. And of course, we remember. We've already seen the importance of faithfulness and the number of times that, we've there, that various characters have been sort of tested in their loyalty already in this, in this poem. So clearly, this seems to be, in one sense, the moment that all of that was leading up to, right? That this is going to be one of the core things for Lanfal and his relationship with his fairy mistress, wife, girlfriend, lover, um, Calling somebody your fairy significant other just really <laughs> seems pretty silly. But anyway, um, I mean, I think wife, we could actually, I, I think you could justify the use of the word wife. Um, anyway, loyalty, clearly central. What else? What else do you notice? Anything else jump out at you, Marta? Well, it's kind of going back to the money thing because she, she says that, you know, I'll make you very rich, and she gives him all of these really nice gifts like her horse and her um, and her knee. So yeah. it's, it's a throwback to she's giving him all these rich gifts. <coughs> before. Yeah, yeah. Did that strike anybody else as odd? I mean, there, it, potentially that could, I, I think, perhaps, to some readers, that could strike a kind of sour note. It's all very sweet and romantic. I love you very much. Will you abandon all other women for me? If you do, I will make you fabulously wealthy. <laughs> oh, well, okay. I mean, I, is she bribing him here? I mean, it just, I, I could imagine people reading that and be like, doesn't this sort of cheapen things a little bit? What do you think? How do you read that? I mean, Marty, you sort of started to pick up on that, that it seems to correspond with things that we've seen before, Right. Yeah, Emma? I was kind of got the impression that she saw she loved him very much and she felt he needed money. So she was like, here, honey, you have, <laughs> do you have some presents? Puppy? Yeah, she certainly has plenty. Yeah, Taylor? If um, she's been watching him, then she would have picked up on the fact that he's incredibly benevolent and would thus be completely deserving of it. Yes, yes. And I think both the before and after of 
Landval's poverty demonstrates that. He clearly is worthy of money because he's not seeking to enrich himself. And as soon as he gets money, we get a lot of emphasis about how generous he is and how much of it he gives away. That's what, what he uses his money for. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's, it's clear that in that, too, he... Not that he's been explicitly tested, but he sort of has... He sort of passes a test, right? That um, he's worthy in that sense of money. Yeah, Mac? I believe better gifts are but an elaborate spot to destabilize the economy of England by flooding the market with gold and the value of Insidious. Insidious. I think we should take that into account briefly. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Well, I also kind of wonder if it goes along the, uh, the same lines of, like, um, if I'm getting washed up. Like, if you're going to be my beau, you have to look the part, and that means you're going to need riches, too. So I wonder if it's also, I, I agree with Taylor that it's, it's a love thing, but it could also be a little bit, you know. Yeah, a, a much gentler version of the you make a sorry couple thing, right? Like, okay, honey, you know, um, I love you and everything, but the whole, like, rugged, ragged, mud-splattered look, not doing it for me. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. It's, it's appropriate. I mean, just, I mean it, it, all joking aside, it would, in fact, be inappropriate um, for him to carry on being like a beggar. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's even his sort of... I mean, it would make a certain point to say he was perfectly happy and utterly blissful despite the fact that he was dirt poor. That would be kind of a, you know, sort of a nice moral point to make. Um, but I, I agree. And here, again, I would come back, Taylor, to your point. In a sense, he makes that point despite being rich, right? I mean, we, we see very clearly it is not that, um, in, to the contrary, the poem is suggesting in order to be really happy, you must also be wealthy and have lots of luxury goods. Like, it's, uh, it's clear that that's not the relationship between money and happiness there. Um, but yes, I think that we... Uh, we definitely can see that working. Kelly? Um, could it be part of the contractual marriage arrangement? I mean, if she's the daughter of the king of fairies, she's obviously going to have a really awesome dowry. <laughs> well, yeah, it's certainly true that it was common, um, especially given, as you say, the sort of explicit marital context of their uh, arrangement here. Um, it certainly was, it, traditionally, yeah, the dowry would come with the wife. So he does get what what kind of amounts to a fairy dowry, right? Not just the money, and, and not only the sum of money, but of course, and not even just like the magic bag of like continual uh, and, and never-ending source of money. You get a mark of gold every time you put your hand in, but also the, the stuff, right? The two other major things that he gets, besides the, the, the endless bag of gold, what else does he get? Her steed. Her steed, right? This, which is knightly, right? He gets it. He's now the knight who rides the fairy horse, right? That's pretty cool. And yeah, he gets his fairy super squire, right? Euthra, uh, her, 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 her servant, right? He gets a footman who is pretty awesome, right? Uh, I absolutely love the character of Gifra. Gifra was not in Marie de France. Uh, uh, the, the, the lady gives him money, and uh, you know, the, he, he gets this sort of you know, never-ending access to wealth, which he then gives away. That's in the original. But the horse and the squire are new uh, and 
fun. I love that addition. Uh, Gifra is probably my favorite character uh, for some, what, perverse reasons uh, in the poem. Yeah, yeah, Jordan, go ahead. I think um, the whole wealth question is kind of missing something very important, which is that before she promises him so much as a, a penny of any kind, he, he pledges himself to Swaiting, what so betida, I am to be Right, no matter what. Good. She could demand the rags off his back and he swindled her. And since she gives him new not rags, but he's always <coughs> sworn to do to accept this. He's like, oh well, if you insist. Yes. It's more appropriate than hot damn money. <laughs> right. And in neither case, in neither direction is there a kind of quid pro quo with that. Right. And this is where I think again I come back to what Marta was saying. It seems to be just like this is the thing to do. This is what is appropriate. Is that now that they have sworn to each other. Now that they are in this relationship, this is how he should be. Um, even to the point of his generosity. Just as she has been so generous with him, he should have the means to be generous to others. Uh, now, what about the prohibition? What exactly is the prohibition? And I, I emphasize exactly because I actually I humbly submit that the footnotes misconstrue it a little bit. Very understandably, but I, I don't quite agree with them. What exactly is he forbidden to do? I think he's forbidden to tell anyone that they're in a relationship. He's, for, he's sworn to secrecy, right? She says, I'll come to you every night. All you have to do is just go someplace private and ask for me, and, and, and I'll be there. I'll show up. And she does, like, every, every night, there she is. He, he's, so although he goes off and nobody sees her and nobody knows that she exists... They are continually in relationship, and that's great. But you can never tell anybody, right? Gifra is the only one who can know about this because he's one of her entourage anyway, right? Um, he, he already knows about this. So secrecy, th- this kind of privacy, there's an- she also, though, emphasizes that in another way, too. There's another thing that she adds to that. She talks about sort of just not mentioning it, being secret. Kat, what else does she emphasize? Um. It's at line 362, that thou make no boast of me. Yes. That thou make no boast of me, for no kenismeda. Don't boast of me for any kind of reward. Mead is a word which generally means, and it, usually it refers to money, but it can be any kind of kickbacks, any kind of benefit that comes to you in uh, payment or recognition for something that you've done. Okay. Um, so no matter what the temptation is, no matter, what, no, no matter how you might profit from it, don't boast of me, specifically. Now, the, f- the footnotes speak quite sensibly about a very important fairy tale motifs, such as not men- about names and the importance of names and not revealing names and the power that a person's secret name has and how you can't give away the name... And that's th- those things are very true, and those things are very important in fairy stories. But that's not the issue here. She doesn't say, don't tell anyone, a- anyone my name. Nor, when he breaks the vow, does he, in fact, mention her name. He does, however, boast about her. Not my name, but he makes a boast. That prohibition he breaks. So, so I, I, think, I think the name thing... And it's, it's especially sort of tempting because she's actually given a name and we're told what her name is and that's new in this story and everything. So it's understandable to kind of want to lay some emphasis on her name. But she doesn't make a big deal about the name and he never mentions her name. Um, 
But the boasting, the boasting. Um, Don't brag about me. What do you make of that? What seems to you the significance of that prohibition? And how does it relate to the other things that we see established about their relationship and her nature and things? Why, Why does that prohibition make sense? It's not, I would say, just an arbitrary prohibition. Sometimes we see arbitrary prohibitions in fairy stories, right? Don't do this one particular thing. Everything will be okay, but if you do this one particular thing, something bad will happen. I feel like it deals with an element of security um, in the sense that a person... Like, if you haven't been wealthy forever and you're newly wealthy, you normally are the one who's walking around, like, throwing $100 bills and talking about it constantly. Um, So I think it deals with the idea of security that if he's agreed to be loyal to her, there's no reason for him then to talk about it in a way that would question um, his feelings. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's to boast in the way that she's described would be for him to seek to glorify himself. Essentially, not just to enjoy her and their relationship, which she said, do that as much as you want, but to use it for his own benefit, for for any ken is made, right? To elevate himself. If he were to go around and... It's one thing for him actually to profit by it. Profit by it in monetary terms, and even, of course, just in happiness. But for him to go around saying, well... You should consider me awesome because I have this awesome fairy wife, you know, hidden away that you don't know about. Um, That changes things very significantly. And you can see how that amounts to a kind of transgression against her. Not only she does seem to take the whole secrecy thing seriously and not want to reveal herself, um, there's no obvious reason that we're given anyway why she shouldn't. Um, But... But that big thing does seem to be that change, that, that arrogance, that make it about yourself. Um, yeah, that seems to be the problem. And it's, it's sort of interesting, if you, look, um, if you look back up a little bit, she strikes a similar kind of note. When, she's, when they're in the whole sort of betrothal moment, this is line 313. In response to his initial declaration... Sirknicht gentlen hende, i wot thee stat, orden ende, be nach the shamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me, she starts off by saying, which is interesting. And that, it seems, also is another thing that could be connected with the boasting. I mean, it seems really strange on the one hand, like what on earth would he have to be ashamed of? It would seem that, rather, to the contrary, falling into bragging about her and thinking himself awesome because he has this incomparably beautiful, indescribably wealthy, uh, uh, mysteriously powerful (laughs) uh, wife and girlfriend. I mean, okay, um, what's to be ashamed of there? But, well, there is something to be ashamed of. Her absence. Her invisibility to everybody else. Right? Um, and that, I think, is where we can see the boast coming in. Um, what happens when he breaks it? Why does he break it? Guinevere taunts him. Yeah. Did you get what she's taunting him about? Again, this text is much shyer than Marie de France is. 
um, Marie de France explicitly, Guinevere in Marie de France explicitly says, um, the only reason you've said no to me is that you prefer little boys to women. Uh, And Lanval kind of bristles at that. Uh, And that's when he says, no, I have a girlfriend. And she's like, yeah, whatever. And he's like, no, I do. And then he makes his post. Um, Now, in this text, she's still implying that. She's just implying it more subtly. Uh, There are very few of the factual details that have been changed. Uh, You know, like I said, she's still topless when he shows up. She's just sort of less less unashamedly and overtly topless. Um, Here, too... um, when, when the queen makes her accusation, she is still... See, this is uh, line 685. Fiance thou cuard, a hungeth worth thou he and hard, that thou ever weary bore, that thou livest hit his pity. Now, this is all just insult. You deserve to be hanged uh, with particular violence. Uh, it's a shame you were ever born. It's a pity that you're still alive. Like, I mean, okay, like she's angry, but we're not, we're not really hitting home yet. Thou lovest no woman and no woman they. Thou wert worthy for Laura. There it is. Not, you, know, you don't love women and women don't love you, she said. Um, not overtly accusing him of pedophilia as she was in the original version, but the implication is there. And he slips here. Slips because why? Yeah, and you'll notice there's sort of a two a two-step um, slip here, right? Look at where he first says, "Ye have loved a fire woman, then thou ever laidest thine eye upon this seven year and more. Okay, so that's step one. He's already given her away, right? He's mentioned her, which where he was never supposed to do. The secrecy is betrayed. And he's made a boast, kind of. If he stopped there, you know, maybe he could defend himself. I wasn't exactly boasting. I didn't say anything specifically about you. But he goes on. Here loth lockest maida with uta wena, meekt bet bea quena than thu in all the leva. Oh, those fighting words right there. <laughs> My lady is so beautiful that her ugliest... I, and I just, the word lothlockest is just my favorite word in this whole poem, I have to admit. Uh, her loathliest maiden. Like the, 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 the poorest, ugliest servant in her court is better worthy to be a queen than you. This is, of course, not just a class thing. This is, that, that's, that's a beauty claim. Guinevere is the most beautiful lady in the court. This is how it works. The queen is the most beautiful lady in the court. Don't ask questions. So, um, in saying this, this is him saying, like, this proves how far she is above you. My lady is so much more incomparably excellent and beautiful than you are uh, that even one who is, like, four pegs below her in her court is more beautiful than... He, 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 he's saying the fairy court 
is so incomparably greater than yours, remember her and her ladies, their entourage, that the very bottom of the hierarchy in my ladies' court is higher than the very top of yours, being you, you shameless hussy. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, that, now that's a boast. I'm sorry. Okay, I mean, that's, now he's really done it, right? He kind of started to go there. Now it's definitely over. Um, and we can see this was motivated by his own self-defense. She didn't harm him. I mean, she was mad. She said mean things to him. But it hurts only his own pride. It hurts only his own ego. There's nothing different here from anything else. He's been holding himself aloof from the whole love scene. From her, specifically, from the very beginning. But in general, it's going to be noticeable that he never has a lady that anyone sees. Remember, this came up earlier. This came up earlier, and he passed the test. Remember Sir Valentine the Giant and what he does? Sir Valentina? What does Sir Valentine the 15-foot-tall giant say in his challenge? Which is a strange kind of challenge coming from a 15-foot-tall giant, but anyway, he says it. Do you remember the terms on which he challenges him? Back up around line 500 is when the challenge comes. Line 505 is the introduction of Sir Valentina, who wants to challenge him to joust. Line 523 is the message that Sir Valentine charges his servant to bring to Landfall. And say him, for love of his layman, if she be any gentlewoman, courtes fray other hender, that he come with me to Justa, and keep his harness from the rooster, and ellis his manhood shender. Those are fighting words, too. The 15-foot-tall giant, I guess, has a girlfriend, uh, and he's challenging him in the name of his lady. If you have a lady... Who's worth defending? Come defend her name and her honor. If she be any gentle woman. So this puts Lanval in a difficult spot. Can he accept this challenge? If he does, will he give away his lady? Will he break his vow? He passes the test, though. How does he pass it? Look what Lanval does when the message comes to him. We get a, a sort of abstract of that same challenge. And uh, line uh, f- uh, 538, and pray they for the lemonis saka, thou shouldest with him justice taka. For your layman's sake, for your, for your lover's sake. And Lanval laughs quietly to himself. Luch Lanval, full stiller. I like that. It's, he's, he finds this amusing. But even his laughter he conceals. And Saida, as he was gentle knicht, thilke day a forte nicht, he wold with him ply. Placed in a situation where it seems like he either has to back down, allowing his manhood to be questioned, or 
accept the claim in the name of his lady, thus giving away the existence of his lady, he handles it really well. He didn't say anything about his lady. He just says, I will fight you. Read into that what you want to read into that, right? He is, one could say, he's recognizing that he has a lady. In accepting that challenge, if you have a lady, Kurtis Freyodrhenda, then fight on her behalf. And he's like, all right, I'll fight. But he didn't say anything. He didn't boast of her. He didn't elevate himself. He just said, I'll fight you. That was, that was good. He did it. But uh, not so much with Guinevere. The, the fight with Sir Valentine, the um, sort of, in some ways, there's some people who complain about it and think that this whole scene is kind of egregious. Like, why do we need to add, like, a combat with a giant in the middle of the story, especially since we just got an egregious tournament shot, right? We, we, you know, we, we get him unhorsing people and, and taking their horses and being given the prize at the tournament. And just in case that wasn't enough to convey what an awesome knight he is, we're also going to send him to Lombardy and, 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 and pit him against a 15-foot guy. Um, okay, I mean, I, I can see that. But, but I really like it. Especially since it's the time we get to see Gifra in action. <laughs> and we get to see what it really means to have a fairy squire. Did you catch what Gifra does during the combat? Crazy, crazy feats of squirehood. Right, the first time Landfall's helmet falls off, it gets knocked off. What does Gifra do? Yeah, they can't call time out. So Valentine is really excited because now Landfall has no helm. He's like, oh, I'll just have to do, I, you know, it'll be easy to kill him now. And Giefer is like, my master is in need. So he goes over and he grabs the helmet and he like takes the helmet, leaps onto the back of the moving horse, buckles his helmet back on while he's riding and then flips off. <laughs> I totally think that Giefer should be done with like matrix effects. You know? <laughs> Even better is the second time, and the second pass, he loses his shield, right? This time, Giefer is ready for him from the beginning and goes over before the shield even hits the ground. Vroom, catches it, pivots, spins, puts the shield back on again. It's not just a matter of, like, handing him the shield, but you can't just toss it up to him. You've got to put it back on, right? You've got to buckle it back onto his arm. But, of course, he can do this while the horse is still moving. I mean, man, man, Giefer is incredible. I wouldn't give up that scene for anything. Just love it. Just love it. But again, I mean, it's, it also shows... The, the, the other thing that I really... Apart from the fact that it's just objectively cool is the fact that it shows you, again, sort of in practice, what being a knight blessed by fairy means, right? He doesn't... It's, it's, this, is mu- this is better than just the bag of gold. And it's sort of implied in the fact of his having the horse, though we don't get... To, I mean, we, we get, like, one small moment of Blanchard awesomeness when he's, like, beaten up on other knights in the combat and stuff, which a really great fairy war steed would do. But, but with Gifra, we can see he is looked out for, right? You can see sort of this particular quality of uh, the blessing that has been given to him right? He is not, he's not given, as he might have been given, for instance, like a squadron of fairy warriors to fight with him or anything. What he's given is 
the super squire, who helps him and enables and protects him and enables him to do his thing and to be a better knight than ever. But, but it's still his own skill and his own prowess. Um, I think it's really, it makes even more poignant the significance of the prohibition, where he is prohibited to use this blessing to elevate himself. Because the blessing is elevating him already. I mean, it's all about augmenting him. I'm going to give you not, uh, but, you know, more knights or anything, but I'm going to give you this squire who's going to make you into the greatest knight. You are going to be elevated. Don't seek in your own pride to do that yourself, to elevate your reputation. Yeah, yeah, Jordan? Um, I, I saw the tournament and the Valentine thing as part of a, uh, a set with the, the feast we gives in the way. He receives three gifts, as we, were discuss- we discussed. Well, more than that, but I think blood, the voice and the world kind of can be kind of put into a set. Yeah, yeah. So he's been given the riches, and it, it displayed how he used those. He, he, like, he helped people out. Then he's given this world kind of halo of which he bears the tournament. And the awesome which I think they fit into a pretty neat set of, you know, nightmare. Mm-hmm. And that's the tournament scene. And then there's the Valentine's Keithless um, scene as showing, you know, each of these three things is, you know, awesome as you just have. Right. It's a set of very gift being awesome scenes. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's definitely how, how we should be seeing them. And again, I think it's interesting to see the significance of each of those things, right? And the way in which they they augment him. They augment him in the same way that being washed up and being put in nice clothes augments you. It doesn't actually make you more attractive. It doesn't actually make you different. It just sets you off, right? It just enables others to perceive the good things about you. And it's, yeah, it makes him into a great knight. Not creates, he wasn't a bad knight to begin with, but it, 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 Miraculously facilitates that. Yeah, Matt. Uh, the interpretation of the of the reason for Longwell's description that you're describing the idea of don't don't use this to claim your own glory. That seems re- really reminiscent of the way in which Moses fell from grace in the Old Testament. Do you think that was a conscious influence, or is it just a influence? There are a bunch of things in this poem, and not just that one thing that I mentioned last time, the, the gospel reference. I, I, I am frequently thinking Bible thoughts throughout this poem. And um, I, think, I think there's reason for that. Um, I'm not sure. There certainly are some similarities with the Moses para- parallel. Um, you know, what Moses does wrong, it, he is the instrument of God's miracles for chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters, miracle after miracle. And what he finally does wrong, Moses' great sin, is to, in the act of, of carrying out one of those great works that God has ordained and told him he's going to do through him, he draws attention to himself. Um, and, you know, he's supposed to, there's, they're complaining that they're thirsty again for the reason that they have no water. And God says, I'm going to provide them water uh, speak to this stone and water will come out uh, and water the people. And Moses, instead of doing exactly what God tells him, uh, makes a speech to the people and says, must I bring you water forth out of this rock? And he turns and he 
theatrically smites the rock with his staff instead of just speaking to it as God commanded to him and the water comes out and God does carry out the blessing but then later on says Moses bad bad you took credit for that yourself you acted like it was by your power and your authority that you were just like doing that miracle out of your fund of awesomeness Uh, not cool Moses not cool Um, and I think that we can see a kind of parallel. I'm not sure the parallel is exact, mostly because the relationship between landfall and tree more, certainly between landfall and kind of fairy in general, is very different than that between Moses and, 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 and God. <laughs> Enough. Uh, that is, specifically I'm thinking in terms of subordination. There's not... That fairy in particular, nor fairy in general, seems to ask of him the kind of submission and subordination that God does. Um, and of course, in one sense, it's exactly reversed in that the problem is that the problem that Moses done is, is distract attention away from God instead of uh, Lenval's problem is that he directs any attention towards her. So there are certainly some differences, but certainly in the sense that it is about self-aggrandizement. That is certainly something that I think that both of them have in common. Yeah, Jordan, go ahead. Um, I think that you can come with most examples that it's an Old Testament example, but and Triamor, as one of those mentioned, might give over to the Trinity. And you know, Christ is supposedly married to the church. There's a lot of things that can be drawn from that. There's a lot of things, similarities in what she requests and how she plays. It would take a long time when we have a class to go over. Yeah. Those are, those are, that's exactly, that's exactly, I, I will admit that's exactly the subset, the, the species of Bible thoughts that I was having too. Uh, and that's where I found myself really tempted to just like throw caution to the wind and like go St. Augustine on this passage. Like I try to resist that most of the time, but uh, there are some times when it's hard to resist. And yeah, it's Trinity Day when he goes into the woods and meets Triamor, who says, like, I shall take you unto me and let's, like, have, let's, like, be married like Christ in the church. And then, and, and the relationship that he has with her later on and this, uh, yeah, there are, there are several parallels then to sort of, like, the New Testament church and whatever. I, you could, I think you could totally do that. I don't know that we have to do that. And I don't know necessarily even that it would be the best of ideas to do that, um, but it would be fun. And there's no way, I, I can't imagine that at least many people in a medieval audience would resist that. We love that in the Middle Ages. That's fun. We do, we, remember, we don't have like Xbox or anything in the Middle Ages. <laughs> so like detailed scriptural allegorical interpretations are what we do at parties. So... Um, you know, it's okay. Try it. Try it sometime. Have a good weekend. Uh, do, some, do some allegorical interpretation at parties this weekend. See how your friends take it. All right. I'll leave you today with one last very important thought puzzle. In the blockbuster film version of Sir Launfal, whom would you cast as Gifra? For next time, make sure you've read the rest of Sir Launfal. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>